Hi, everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz. I'm Matthew, co-host of the Audio Judo podcast, the parent show to this spin-off limited series. Both Audio Judo and Audio Judo Does Jazz are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. On this episode, your host, Chris, talks about the spectacularly named and equally well-dressed Thelonious Monk, piano player extraordinaire. I don't know a heck of a lot about him, so looking forward to this. And uh, without uh, any delay, here's your host, Chris. I am in the process of writing letters to my daughters. Letters, I hope, will be a springboard to their journey through life, much like this podcast is a springboard to your own journey through jazz. At the moment, the letters are written in four general categories. Letters regarding relationships, about our many layers of identity, the reasons we go to school, and how we can go about applying these lessons we learn in order to help solve the world's problems. God knows there's enough of them to go around. It is with delight, then, that I found out Steve Lacey wrote down about 25 pieces of advice from Thelonious Monk in 1960. Lacey played soprano sax with Monk for a fairly short period of time. Fortunately for us, his advice has been published. I thought it would be a nice way to frame this episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz by imparting Monk's wisdom upon you all. The first thing you need to know about Thelonious Monk is that he brings the joy, the fun. His music will put a smile on your face. Give his songs a few listens, and you'll find yourself either whistling the melody or humming along. I don't always know the title of the Monk tune I'm listening to, but I certainly know it's a Monk song when I hear it. The second thing you need to know about Thelonious Monk is that he's one of the most singular characters in all of jazz history, from his witticisms, to his compositions, to his general appearance, the trademark beard, all the cool and interesting hats he wore, the rings on his fingers sometimes with, sometimes without sunglasses on, and his habit of dancing in the bandstand while his band plays. Monk was always Monk. The third, and for our purposes, the most important thing, is that, to my ears, he had the most consistent discography in all of jazz history. There may have been some peaks, but there weren't any valleys. The music he played in the 1940s is as great as it was in the early 1970s. His earliest recordings suggest, to me, that his music came fully formed. You could purchase any single one of them, and I can pretty much guarantee that you'll enjoy it. After Duke Ellington, he is the second most recorded jazz composer of all time for a reason. I think we could all use a little joy right now. Whether you're hurting due to all the economic issues we've been facing, whether you have suffered yourself from this incessant COVID plague, whether you feel like you lived in the twilight zone for four years like I did, or God forbid, you lost somebody recently, I think we could all use some lightness. I present to you one of my favorite jazz artists of all time, the high priest of bebop, the genius of modern music, the illustrious Thelonious Monk. Thank you. 
That was Dinah, recorded in 1964 for his solo Monk album released on Columbia Records. While this isn't actually a Monk composition, it was written in the 1920s, it has all the hallmarks of a Monk tune. You can hear the stride piano influence of Mr. James P. Johnson providing the bouncing rhythm in his left hand, while the right hand plays one of the happiest melodies I've ever come across. The first album I ever bought of Monk's was his first album released on the Columbia label, Monk's Dream, recorded late in 1962. By this time in his recording career, he had already made a name for himself and recorded numerous landmark LPs for the Riverside label throughout the mid to late 1950s. Within a couple of years, he would find his face on the cover of Time magazine, only one of a handful of jazz artists to do so. At the time I bought the album, I knew nothing about him, except that he had a cool and original name. All I knew was what I heard, and what I heard were a bunch of charming, joyful, playful, amusing songs that get lodged in your ear, including the title track. He performed the jazz standard Body and Soul solo with his idiosyncratic approach. He punches the keys, hits only the notes that matter, allowing each listener to fill in the blanks with his or her own imagination. Five Spot Blues and Baya are two more pleasant charmers. By the time the record finished, I had been hooked. I knew that Monk definitely required a lot more research. My point in bringing up this album experience is not to say that this is the album you need to start with. It might be my 10th favorite Monk album. After all I've listened to, I don't see the point in ranking them. I would like to get across to you the idea that every door is a way into Monk. He doesn't have a more mature era. He didn't have any horrible failures. He doesn't necessarily have that one album that you absolutely have to get. I mean, he may have a good dozen albums that you may want to get, but that's a different conversation. His career can be broken up somewhat neatly. One, there's his early period, which can be summed up as his short stints on two separate record labels, Blue Note and Prestige, from 1947 to 1954. These are the prototypes. Many, if not most of the songs that you'll hear in his later records were recorded at this time. That's not to say that any of these recordings are any lesser than their future versions. As I have said already, Monk already sounds fully formed in these earlier recordings. Two, there would be his middle period, spent on the Riverside label from 1955 to 1961. You get to hear Monk in a wide array of settings. Solo, trio, orchestra, and combos with the greatest sax players of the day on a record or two each. Coleman Hawkins, Sonny Rollins, John Coltrane, and Johnny Griffin, among others. You could argue that his greatest recordings were made during this period. I don't know that it's a scientific fact, but it might be, depending on what you're looking for. When I saw the 15-disc complete Riverside Recordings box set at the record store, I just had to have it. Or number three, there would be his later period, mainly recording for Columbia Records from 1962 through 1968, mainly as a quartet with Charlie Rouse as his tenor sax player. His Columbia Recordings may not be as highly touted by the critics as his Riverside Recordings, but don't be fooled. They are as great as anything else he ever recorded, and Charlie Rouse is a great interpreter of his material. They don't lack in anything. You could also add in his final recordings here for Black Lion Records, which were recorded in late 1971. 
I struggled in this episode wondering if my approach at utilizing Monk's advice would work. Good writing is showing, not telling, right? But then it hit me. This is jazz. Every time a musician plays live on stage, they're interpreting compositions in real time. At the exact moment, they're playing them. Theoretically, they'll never play the same song again the same way. Jazz isn't a fixed music. It's not routine. It's about taking chances. It's about making your mark, using your voice, stamping your soul into a composition, and seeing if you can make it your own. I'm going to tell you what all these pieces of advice mean to me. Not because I feel the need to hear my own voice prattle on and on with the glorious thoughts in my head, but it's because it's my interpretation of his wisdom. I'd love to know how his advice connects with you. Please write me at chris at audiojudo.com and let me know if Monk's advice resonates with you and in what way it resonates. I think it would be interesting to find out if my interpretations are similar to yours. Again, as a non-musician, what little I've ascertained about Monk's music is that it's different from everybody else's. For musicians, his music can be difficult to play, difficult to translate. In a sense, his music is a language unto itself. Put in another way, it's a philosophy of music open to many different interpretations. That was Ruby My Dear, recorded in 1957 with the legendary Coleman Hawkins on tenor sax. I chose this track for several reasons. One, Hawkins is basically the first tenor sax player to emerge in jazz history. His original recording of Body and Soul is one of those touchstones that all sax players who came after him had to know. Two, without Hawk, there's no Sonny, no Train, no Dexter. And three, it's interesting to compare this version of the song with the one on the Thelonious Monk with John Coltrane album, recorded a short time later. I would have put Train's version on here, since that probably is my favorite Monk album, but it's the differences that make it interesting. Let's talk about Monk's different takes on identity. Let's start with the 24th piece of advice Lacey wrote down. Whatever you think can't be done, somebody will come along and do it. A genius is the one most like himself. How many of us have felt the stab of compromise to be made to feel less than ourselves by someone else? Or a job, knowing you're not in the right place, to feel the doubt in artistic endeavors with someone telling you you're not good enough? We're all at our happiest when we are most like ourselves, when we find people who allow us to be ourselves, when we find that one special person who unlocks the best parts of us. The first part of that also reminds me of number 17, something I mentioned in an earlier episode. A note can be as small as a pin or as big as the world. It depends on your imagination. You think all the technological advances made through the years from radio to television to microwaves to cell phones. I mean, we're not at that stage where flying cars are happening, 
And not everyone has a jetpack out there yet, but our ambitions are only limited by our imaginations. This may or may not be the introduction to jazz podcasts that changes the world, but you know it's coming. If it's not mine, it will be the next one. Whatever you think can't be done, somebody will come along and do it. Monk is telling you that you've got to show up. You've got to try it. You've got to be present. You've got to expound on the gifts God gave to you. If you're here for a reason, let the world know that reason. You've got to be yourself, and it's only in being yourself that you'll achieve something great. According to Robin D.G. Kelly, author of Thelonious Monk, The Life and Times of an American Original, Monk demanded originality in others, and he embodied it in everything he did. In his piano technique, in his dress, in his language, his humor, in the way he danced, in the way he loved his family and raised his children, and above all, in his compositions. Original did not mean being different for the hell of it. For Monk, to be original meant reaching higher than one's limits, striving for something startling and memorable, and never being afraid to make mistakes. Originality is not always mastery nor does it always yield success, but it is very hard work. In the early 1940s, a number of young, gifted musicians found their way to a bar in New York City called Mitten's Playhouse. Monk and the drummer Max Roach were among the musicians in the house band. Other like-minded artists like Dizzy Gillespie on trumpet, Charlie Parker on alto sax, Charlie Christian on guitar, and Kenny Clark, also on drums, came around and had jam sessions long into the next morning. Mittens became a place where musicians would come from all over to try their hand at the new music percolating in after-hours jam sessions. The music they would come up with is bebop music, meant to be listened to more than it meant to be danced to. Every musician had something to add to the stew. As Mary Lou Williams, both a mentor and good friend of Monk, recalls, the group was formed in order to challenge the practice of downtown musicians coming uptown and stealing the music. She recalled, Monk and some of the cleverest of the young musicians used to complain, we'll never get credit for what we're doing. They had reason to say it. In the music business, the going is tough for original talent. Everybody is being exploited through paid-for publicity. And most anybody can become a great name if he can afford enough of it. In the end, the public believes what it reads. So it is often difficult for the real talent to break through. Anyway, Monk said, we're going to get a big band started. We're going to create something they can't steal because they can't play it. As Dizzy and Bird's fame and notoriety rose above all others, Monk's career barely got off the ground. Part of that is because critics from the jazz papers didn't fully understand his work. According to Kelly, an important critic of the day named Leonard Feather was a big promoter of Dizzy Gillespie at the expense of Monk. In his book Inside Bebop, Feather basically dismisses Monk as not being very interesting and said his contributions to the creation of the music were unimportant. Monk's response, I feel I've contributed more to modern jazz than all the other musicians combined. That's why I don't like to always hear Gillespie and Parker brought the revolution to jazz, when I know most of the ideas came from me. Dizzy and Bird did nothing for me musically. They didn't teach me anything. In fact, 
They were the ones who came to me with questions, but they got all the credit. They're supposed to be the founders of modern jazz when most of the time they only interpreted my ideas. Fortunately for Monk, he had a champion in his corner by the name of Lorraine Lyon, who just happened to be the wife of Alfred Lyon, the owner of Blue Note Records. Around this time, in 1947, an article came out referring to him as the George Washington of bebop. While it may have added a little mystique to his name, it didn't add much in the way of record sales. His first recordings can be found on the Blue Note label, or on the albums labeled Genius of Modern Music. There are two volumes. It doesn't matter which one you pick up, or if you merely pick up his best of the Blue Note album, which is what I got. I Mean You, one of my favorite Monk compositions. This version was recorded for Blue Note Records in 1947 with Milt Jackson playing vibes. Inexplicably, to my modern ears, his earliest recordings had a difficult time selling, which would become a reoccurring theme in his career. In September 1948, Lorraine secured him a week of work at the Village Vanguard. Apparently, nobody came to see him play. In August 1951, New York policemen searched the parked car occupied by Monk and his good friend, Bud Powell. They found narcotics in the car, presumed to have belonged to Bud Powell. Monk refused to testify against his friend, so the police confiscated his New York City cabaret card. Without it, Monk was unable to play in any New York locations where liquor was served. This restricted his ability to play for several years, though he was able to get some work in some black-owned bars that didn't exactly follow those rules. Monk spent most of the early to mid-1950s composing songs. According to Wikipedia, Thelonious Monk recorded 73 different compositions. Some of them he recorded over and over again, because he played several of them live quite a bit, like Epistrophe, Bemsha Swing, Blue Monk, and Nutty. Other songs were written for people in his life, like Little Rudy Tootie for his son, Bananica for his dear friend, Panonica de Königswarte, Bubu's birthday for his daughter Barbara, and Crepuscle with Nelly, written for his wife. Advice number 22. These pieces were written so as to have something to play and to get cats interested enough to come to rehearsal. Songs are conversations. You're going to have a million conversations in life. So bring something interesting to the table. Bring something to say. Show that you're listening. you got to keep things interesting in any productive relationship if you want it to last. This is especially important with significant others in your life going to talk to each other on a daily basis, you got to come up with insights worth the conversations you'll have later. Number eight, always know. It may sound cryptic, but I understand Monk had a ring in his hand, and if you turn it upside down, no becomes Monk. 
I don't fully understand what that means, whether it means to be prepared or whether Monk knows more than everyone else or if it's some Buddhist Zen philosophical tenet of not knowing is knowing. I think always know is just one of those things, like 42 being the ultimate answer to the question of life. Advice number 13. The inside of the tune, the bridge, is what makes the outside sound so good. I have a difficult time figuring out what a bridge is in jazz. For the most part, a lot of the songs I hear are theme, solos, return to theme. Perhaps I'm not paying close enough attention. Bridges are a lot easier to recognize in pop rock songs, and the Beatles have dozens of great bridges. In life, this piece of advice means to me, simply, to work on your inner self, and that will come out in your outer appearance. Work on that confidence. Work on your feelings of self-worth, and other people will notice. I would love to know what a monk bridge sounds like. Trinkle Tinkle, one of the three classic tunes John Coltrane recorded with Monk in a quartet setting. The other songs on the Thelonious Monk with John Coltrane album consisted of one solo Monk number and two leftovers from a previous recording session from the Monk's Music album a month prior. It's probably my favorite Monk record, as I mentioned earlier, and one I highly recommend. The way Coltrane plays on that record makes me wonder about the next two pieces of advice. Number 14. Don't play everything or every time. Let some things go by. Some music just imagined. And number 15. What you don't play can be more important than what you do play. I mean, Coltrane played every idea he had, and he had a lot of them. I'm sure Coltrane may have been the exception to the rule, though Johnny Griffin, who followed him, had a lot of ideas too. And he didn't pull any punches. Monk valued silence. When you watch him play, you can see that every note he plays has a purpose. He doesn't play everything to fill up the space. He isn't playing just to be playing. And when he thinks the tune requires something different, a different rhythm, a different voice, he plays that instead. Advice number two, pat your foot and sing the melody in your head when you play. And number three, stop playing all that bullshit, those weird notes. Play the melody, otherwise known as for my brother, no honking and farting. Melody gives players direction. It gives them a spine, a structure, a purpose, something they can come back to, something they can branch off from. Monk wrote these tunes. When you're soloing over a rhythm, remember that there's a melody and there's a purpose for that melody. It doesn't give you an excuse to play whatever. There's a root, and this is a performance. When Monk calls a tune, there is a purpose, a reason you're playing evidence or crisscross or epistrophe that particular night. Each song is a lesson, each performance an application of that lesson. Advice number four, make the drummer sound good. Number 10, let's lift the bandstand. And number 19, when you're swinging, swing some more. I think these three pieces of advice about performance are all about service. 
no one wins unless everybody wins. I don't mean handing out participation trophies. I mean, when it comes to relationships, when you're invested in one another, when you're sublimating yourself for the sake of your relationship, for the sake of your better half, for the sake of your children, make them sound good. Put the other person into a position to succeed. Lift the bandstand. Treat every job, every workday, every day, every meeting, every blank piece of paper is an opportunity to make something greater. Be something greater. To rise above the mundane. There's an opportunity to put your stamp on something. To get others to feel. To inspire the spirit of others. What are we here for if not to live? If not to love? If not to learn? Get out of your phones and get passionate about something. It strikes me that I have given the bassists and drummers that have accompanied Monk short shrift by not mentioning any of them. I'm sure that playing Monk's music had been both challenging and liberating for all of them as well. And every now and then, I catch some inventive things going on there. One individual who played with Monk throughout his career is the great drummer Art Blakey. He played on his earliest Blue Notes and Prestige recordings, as well as several of his classic Riverside recordings, He also played drums during his last recordings for Black Lions Records. Now would be a perfect time for me to show you some inventive playing from the rhythm section. But no, we're going to drop a saxophone solo on you. ladies and gentlemen, is the sound of Thelonious Monk dancing. Actually, it's the sound of Johnny Griffin on tenor sax, in the middle of his five-minute sax solo on In Walked Bud, with Monk laying out, allowing Griffin as much space as he needed. The song was recorded in 1958 at the Five Spot in New York City, and released on Monk's Mysterioso album, one of two live albums released with Griffin on tenor sax. The other is called Thelonious in Action. I normally play the beginnings of songs to entice you, my beloved listener, and this song has one of my favorite opening melodies. However, this particular solo has been touted by famed music critic Robert Christigau as his favorite five minutes of music. Who am I to keep that from you and him? You know, if Christigau happens to be listening in. One of my favorite pieces of advice is number 12. Don't play the piano part. I'm playing that. Don't listen to me. I'm supposed to accompany you. He's talking about the roles we all play in each other's lives. He's talking about the responsibilities we have in this powerful play that goes on. He's talking about contributing a verse. We can't be everything to everyone, but there are certainly a lot of different roles we play in all the different lives we affect. Sometimes we play starring roles, and sometimes we're merely a cameo. Sometimes we pick up right where we left off with old friends, and sometimes we can never get back to that place. It's entirely possible that I missed the mark on any one, if not all, of Monk's pieces of advice. He's a brilliant man. All of these guys are brilliant. You'd have to be in order to come up with the music that they came up with. The one piece of advice that I think is most relevant to the world today 
is number five. Discrimination is important. That means you have to recognize the difference between one thing and another. Growing up, I didn't understand the difference between mere attraction and actually being in love with someone. How many people in dysfunctional relationships can distinguish the difference between love and control? The entire history of our country has been a battle royal with people arguing about what actual representation, equality, freedom, and patriotism means. With all the information coming out into the world, how are we going to be able to explain the differences of these words to our kids? Four and One, a track off Monk's Live at the Blackhawk album, a recent discovery with Charlie Rouse on tenor sax. 25 years onward, it feels so great to be discovering new albums. It struck me while I did my research that Monk's life and career had been supported mainly by women. His wife, Nellie, Alfred Lyon's wife, Lorraine, had been his champion before anyone else in the business, Panonica de Königswater, one of the great patrons of jazz who took Monk in in the last years of his life so he could be provided with better care, and Mary Lou Williams, a mentor and friend of his, and piano great as well. Nor would I be able to work on these episodes without the support of the fine ladies in my family as well. Before I started researching for this episode, I thought the music represented one of my daughters quite well. Perhaps you all know someone that stands out, someone that's just different than all the rest. Someone who makes you shake your head and laugh because you have no idea where this person came from or where they get their ideas. My youngest daughter, Casey, is a complete mystery to me. She's just as smart and funny and sweet as her older sister, but something about her is absolutely alien to me. She has a way of making complete strangers smile. She has a point of view of life I already marvel at. She's six years old. She's carefree, she's fearless, except in trying new foods. She doesn't allow time to weigh her down. For her, every day is an opportunity to explore, and I can't wait to see where her fearlessness and her desire to go and do will take her. She's everything that Thelonious Monk's music is, and more. And that's why I'm dedicating this episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz to her. One of the things I learned while doing my research, however, is that Monk was probably bipolar. All those eccentricities of his, all of his idiosyncratic behaviors, all those things that helped make Monk, Monk, have been diagnosed. I learned this from an interview with Robin D.G. Kelly, his biographer. He learned it from Monk's family, who said he probably had some experiences that go back to the 1940s that are more fully understood due to his bipolar disorder. I don't know what it's like. I can't comprehend how scary or debilitating having bipolar disorder can be. But I also have one daughter, Libby, who has anxiety. I fully understand it's different from bipolar disorder, but it's along the spectrum of mental health issues. It's one thing I keep seeing over and over again in my research of all these guys. 
the mental health issues they battle their entire lives. I think it affected each and every one of them. For better or for worse, unlike Casey, Libby is a lot like me. On one hand, I think I have a good idea as to what she will need to know and what lessons she can learn from my own life. On the other hand, I haven't a clue as to what she's going through at this time. I would love for any and all of you to write in what you know about anxiety, bipolar, or any other mental health issues that you or someone you know is going through. Like everything else with this podcast, I would like to start a dialogue. I think that's the best first step we can take in order to help one another through all this. I will be dedicating a future episode to Libby. Like her sister, she's an inspiration to me. Both my daughters are way cooler than I have ever been in my life, and that makes me so happy. I remember a friend of mine from junior high wrote in my yearbook to Chris, who's pretty cool for a nerd, and that about sums my life up. I hope the instructive aspect of this episode wasn't too off-putting. Some experiments work better than others. God bless you. All my love, Chris. Still hoping I'm cool enough for being a nerd. Thank you so much, Chris. And uh, if I've what I've read over the years is any indication, your daughters are going to love those letters as much as they love you. Uh, your writing is fantastic, as everybody who's listening to this podcast is keenly aware by now. So Chris has some recommendations for you to listen to. For Thelonious Monk, they are Genius of Modern Music or Best of Blue Note. Wouldn't be the worst greatest hits album you ever purchased. Brilliant Corners, Monk's Music. Thelonious Monk with John Coltrane, Thelonious in Action, Mysterioso, Live at the Blackhawk, Monk's Dream, and Solo Monk. He has a few recommendations by other artists he mentioned on this podcast as well. They are Steve Lacey's Reflections, Anthony Braxton, Six Monk Compositions, one of the few albums from the 1980s that Chris recommends, and Carmen McRae, Carmen Sings Monk. Yes, he actually sought out an album with vocals, and it's great. So, pick up one of those and give it a listen, then drop us a line and tell us what you think. The website is www.audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ. On Facebook, you can get a hold of us at facebook.com at audiojudodoesjazz. Twitter, at audiojudojazz. Or you can just email directly at jazz at audiojudo.com. For a direct line to Chris with your questions or comments, email him at chris, that's C-H-R-I-S, at audiojudo.com. Also, if you're interested in finding some non-jazz music to listen to, give our original podcast, Audio Judo, a try. You can find that at audiojudo.com or anywhere podcasts are podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time. 